Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Regina. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop updates from the, from the 46th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS, on triple negative breast cancer. And today's program is one that many of you have long-awaited um, hearing. And um, it is an important program because you get to hear all the updates um, on triple negative breast cancer. The program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc., Gilead, and Novartis Oncology. And really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we also want to acknowledge that there are many of you on the call today. Um, we have over 460 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants. I'm going to read the countries because there's just so many countries here. Albania, Algeria, Canada, France, Ghana, Germany, India, Ireland, Israel, Laos, Portugal, Romania, Sweden, the Virgin Islands, and the United Kingdom. So it's clearly a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ann Blyes. And Dr. Blyes is Professor of Medicine and Division Director, University of Minnesota, Division of Hematology Oncology and Transplantation, Director of Cancer Survivorship Services and Translational Research, Masonic Cancer Center, MCC member, Masonic Cancer Center, Section Lead, Medical Oncology, Hematologic, Hematologist, Oncologist, Past Chair, American Society of Clinical Oncology, Oncology's Cancer Survivorship Committee Member, Executive Board, Global Cardio-Oncology Society, Associate Editor, JACC Cardio-Oncology, Section Editor, HEMONC, Today on Survivorship. And Dr. Blyes will be addressing an overview of triple negative breast cancer, new research on triple negative breast cancer presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Triple Net Breast Cancer Specific Treatment Updates and Updates on Clinical Trials and Advancing Treatment Choices for Triple Negative Breast Cancer. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Blyse. Hi, thanks, Carolyn. We're excited to be here with all of you today. And you're going to hear some of the San Antonio updates from myself and Dr. Garrido Castro. And we look really forward to talking to you. So I think most people on the call know that you know, triple negative breast cancer really is a, a biologically aggressive type of breast cancer where there's no expression of the estrogen receptor 
the progesterone receptor or the HER2 receptor. Um, what's good about that is that it also tends to be responsive to chemotherapy, even though we think of it as biologically aggressive. Um, almost all triple negative breast cancers require chemotherapy. And in early stage breast cancer, where patients present with stage two or three disease, um, typically, the standard of care today is the use of chemoimmunotherapy with a goal of achieving a complete response um, in preparation for surgery. And I'll talk a little bit about updates from San Antonio. Um, in the, if an individual presents with stage 2 and 3 breast cancer with lymph node involvement and no metastatic disease um, or with tumors over 2 centimeters in size, um, based on the Keynote 522 trial, um, the use of carboplatinum and texanes in combination with pembrolizumab, um, followed by anthracycline, followed by adjuvant pembrolizumab, have become the standard of care over the last year. As in stage one disease, where patients are presenting with smaller tumors, it's less clear whether or not the actual amount of chemoimmunotherapy is needed in that specific situation, as well as the role of immunotherapy. And there were not many updates at San Antonio on early stage one disease. But I wanted to spend a little time talking about stage two and three disease. So if it, a patient undergoes chemoimmunotherapy based on the Keynote 522 trial and go on to achieve a pathologic complete response, um, there are several different clinical trials currently in process to try to answer what steps come next. Um, based on, on Keynote 522, patients go on to receive adjuvant Keytruda for nine cycles in the adjuvant setting. The Alliance for Cancer Clinical Trials has a current study called Optimize that's randomizing patients to Keytruda or placebo to really try to understand for those exceptional responders whether or not Keytruda is needed in the adjuvant setting. If no pathologic complete response is achieved, uh, additional treatments may be considered Another study currently underway is called the ASCENT trial, um, taking individuals who have residual cancer after their neoadjuvant therapy and randomizing them to Keytruda in combination with capsidabine versus Keytruda and sasituzumab govotecan. For individuals who have a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation based on the Olympia study, um, individuals are recommended to go on to receive Olaparib uh, for a year, which has demonstrated approximately an 8% improvement in outcomes. And not in any clinical trials in the setting of having residual cancer at the time of surgery, adjuvant Keytruda is recommended. Um, sometimes this is done in conjunction with capsidabine or oral Zolota. Um, but as I mentioned, additional studies are underway to try to figure out um, the optimal setting so at San Antonio this year, um, the question was raised whether or not immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting is beneficial. Um, adjuvant meaning after surgery, if somebody went directly to surgery. The Impassion 030 study, um, they looked at the use of atezolizumab in combination with paclitaxel, followed by an anthracycline-based treatment with atezolizumab, and then adjuvant um, atezolizumab alone. The primary endpoint within this trial was to look at invasive disease-free survival. And at a median follow-up of 25 months, there was no difference um, in invasive disease-free survival between those using atezolizumab in combination with chemotherapy 
versus chemotherapy alone. It raises the question whether or not immunotherapy needs to be used prior to surgery. There were some limitations to this study in that uh, atezolizumab is a different type of immunotherapy than pembrolizumab, which is what has been used in the other clinical trials, such as Keynote 522. From a principal perspective, um, using upfront immunotherapy prior to surgery, the tumor is present. And so one of the theories behind the biology of this is that it generates and activates a whole host and a diverse set of T cells that following surgery, this diverse set of T cells can search for tumor cells um, and eliminate any residual cells that are present. When using immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting, the amount of T cells that are present um, are, and stimulated are less diverse, um, which really asks the question whether using immunotherapy such as atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting is beneficial. We look forward to hearing about other clinical trials, such as SWOG1418, that is studying adjuvant pembrolizumab um, in early-stage triple-negative breast cancer. Um, I think at San Antonio, we're going to hear later on um, from Dr. Garrido Castro about the optimization of ordering and which types of treatments to use in the metastatic setting, and I'll, I will let her go through those um, as I tell you a few more things and then hand it off to her. Um, I think the other exciting thing about updates from San Antonio is looking at the role of biomarkers, such as ctDNA, to monitor for minimal residual disease. Um, and within all of these different studies, minimal residual disease based on clinical studies seems to precede the presence of metastatic disease by approximately 10 months. Um, and I think it asks the question, if a patient has chemotherapy and still has residual disease um, detectable by blood test, do they need imaging or scans? And secondly, should we be intervening with um, new drug therapies at that time? I think in terms of whether or not this is ready for prime time, we're really trying to, um, I know in my own practice, many patients are asking about whether we should be ordering platforms like this although outside of a research setting, it is not something routinely ordered. I wanted to spend then the next couple of minutes talking about updates in support of care um, that were talked about at San Antonio, and then I will hand this over to Dr. Garrido Castro. On the support of care side, um, at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium 2023, um, I had the privilege of chairing um, one of the quality of life and supportive care sessions. And there were some great abstracts presented. First, Dr. Bruce Mann uh, from the Royal Institute in Melbourne presented on behalf of the prospect study. Um, and many of you on the call know that a lot of the principles of oncology today are really, um, I look at it as, how do we get the same outcomes with less treatment, um, less toxicity, um, really thinking about de-escalation. And Dr. Mann reported on the PROSPECT study, which looked at can radiation be omitted in early stage cancers based on imaging um, markers. Um, and within this study of 400 individuals, they actually found that there was, for those who were randomized to the de-escalation arm, um, they actually had better, um, they had less fear of recurrence and overall better health-related quality of life really suggesting that working with our patient advocates, 
talking to people about the principles of why we're doing research is really important. Secondly, I wanted to highlight an abstract presented by Dr. Lin Yang from Canada, who spoke on behalf of the AMBER trial about sleep. Um, many of our cancer patients, um, many of you, those of you on the call, know that sleep is oftentimes um, disrupted at the time of a cancer diagnosis and during treatment. Within the AMBER, AMBER trial, they looked at sleep and associated quality of life, as well as mental health in a cohort of breast cancer survivors between 2012 and 2019. And ultimately, they were able to determine that sleep timing, meaning when an individual went to sleep, really did not impact quality of life in a cohort of new breast cancer survivors. However, shorter sleep duration and work sleep quality really resulted in worse mental health. Um, suggesting that um, as clinicians and practitioners and many of you that work in our supportive care area, um, we want to be talking about to our patients about sleep um, and thinking about how can we optimize sleep as this directly impacts mental health. Next, I wanted to talk about an abstract presented by Dr. Paul Kotu, um, who is from Paris. Um, he discussed the, in the CANTO trial, this was a study out of France looking at stage one through three breast cancer. About 50% of these patients received chemotherapy with a taxing. And he went on to look at susceptibility um, for neuropathy. Does this persist in the survivorship period and who is susceptible to this? And within this cohort, they were able to demonstrate that neuropathy persisted in about 13% of this population at five years. Um, he went on to show data that neuropathy does not end with treatment and that many patients um, who still have neuropathy present at six and 12 months were likely to have long-term peripheral neuropathy. They went on to do um, subsequent analysis looking at GWAS or whether or not there are um, SNPs that can predict who actually develops neuropathy. And they were able to demonstrate some key SNPs that looked associated with the development of long-term peripheral neuropathy. Um, for someone like myself that works in the survivorship space and looks at long-term chronic disease, was very interested in this as other SNPs have been associated with cardiac toxicity after cancer therapy. And I hope with time that we will be able to implement these in clinical practice to really try to predict who is going to develop neuropathy, how do we intervene early, recognizing that these have significant toxicities for patients. And finally, I wanted to discuss um, an abstract presented by Dr. Freeman at the University of Chicago looking at care delivery. They looked at a population-based sample through the NHIS clinical trial in 2021. This is a self-reported study that looks at individuals with cancer. They looked at those with breast cancer and looked at whether or not individuals had access to virtual care. They looked at associated psychological distress, anxiety, and depression over a 12-month period of time. Within this cohort of 698 um, individuals, 20% of them reported depression, 17% anxiety, and about 3% of them having very serious um, psychological distress. Um, what was important about it um, and why I'm bringing it up here is that adults with breast cancer experiencing serious mental health with depression and anxiety had a greater odds of using virtual health 
um, whether that was by phone call or telehealth through video monitoring with a hazard adjusted ratio of 3.79. So for all of you on the call that work with supportive care services to help address unmet needs in our breast cancer patients, thinking about how do we provide equitable care, I think it's important that we're all thinking about how do we provide access to virtual care and services, especially to access our patient population that may be suffering from depression and anxiety. Finally, I wanted to just remind people that it is COVID and flu season. Um, COVID cases, flu cases are on the rise, and it is recommended that individuals receive vaccination. Um, as well, for those over the age of 60, um, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus vaccinations are also recommended in individuals over the age of 60. And with that, I'll go ahead and hand it off to Dr. Garrido Castro to talk more about our antibody drug conjugates and biomarkers from San Antonio. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Blaise. That was an outstanding presentation, Stella, and you really set the tone for today's program. So thank you so very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is um, Dr. Ana Garrido Castro. And uh, Dr. Um, Garrido Castro um, is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, um, Breast Oncology Program, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Department of Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Ms. Garrido um, Castro will be, Dr. Garrido um, Castro will be addressing the increasing role of diagnostic testing, biomarkers, and genetic testing in informing treatment options for triple negative breast cancer, investigational new treatments in clinical trials presented at SABCS for triple negative breast cancer, and new developments in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Garrido Castro. Thank you so much, Carolyn and Dr. Blaze, um, uh, for the invitation to be here today with all of you. And we're going to talk now a little bit shifting gears um, towards the advanced triple negative breast cancer setting about the current standard uh, regimens that we consider um, in the first line setting and beyond, uh, some of the new agents that have been developed in this space and what were some of the new updates that we've heard uh, about at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. So when advanced triple negative breast cancer um, is diagnosed, there are several biomarkers that we look for that help inform our treatment decisions um, in, this, in this setting. And some of those biomarkers are informed by testing of the tumor that is, for example, via a tissue, a tumor tissue biopsy that's performed at the time of metastatic diagnosis to look for some markers, um, in particular a marker called PDL1, which is expressed on about 35 to 40% of advanced triple negative uh, breast cancers and helps identify patients who are potential candidates for immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy as the first approach uh, for, for advanced um, uh, breast cancer. Other biomarkers that we look for um, are come from genomic testing, so testing of the tumor itself as well, also from, for example, a tumor tissue biopsy, or sometimes from a blood biopsy, a blood draw, um, from which we can do genomic testing that can identify 
uh, specific changes um, in the blood um, or the tumor itself that can help inform treatment strategies. For example, we can look at tumor mutational burden, at microsatellite uh, instability, um, among other alterations. And then finally, also genetic testing. So looking at the germline or our in, whether there's an inherited predisposition to developing breast cancer can also help inform treatment strategies. So we know that patients who carry germline mutations in the BRCA gene, BRCA BRCA1 or BRCA2, um, are potential candidates for treatment with a PARP inhibitor for advanced uh, triple negative breast cancer. So all of this to say that there is a, an important role for biomarker discovery and for um, conducting these tests, performing these tests to help inform our treatment decisions. Uh, as I mentioned in the first line setting, um, if a tumor is PDL1 positive, then the standard uh, approach for many patients uh, is chemotherapy in combination with uh, pembrolizumab, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor that in essence what it does is it lifts the brakes off of the immune system to help the immune system recognize and attack the cancer. For patients who, uh, whose tumors are PDL1 negative, so the majority, 60 to 65% of all um, advanced triple negative breast cancers, here the standard approach remains in the first line setting uh, standard chemotherapies such as a taxane or platinum uh, type chemotherapy. Now at um, San Antonio, uh, we heard about uh, a phase two study uh, that uh, was called the attractive phase two study for patients with advanced triple negative breast cancer, first line setting, who received Taxol, Paclitaxel, in combination with another immune checkpoint inhibitor, in this case, atezolizumab, and also a third agent called bevacizumab, which is an antiangiogenic therapy, um, which in essence um, interferes with the development of uh, blood vessels to the tumor. And this triplet combination um, was studied in this phase two trial, which enrolled uh, just over, uh, just about 100 patients on the study. And in this trial, most patients, uh, what we saw with the, uh, in terms of the effectiveness, is that although most of the patients who enrolled on the study had PDL1 negative tumors and whom we would not expect immunotherapy to help improve outcomes based on the Keynote 355 study, here we saw uh, some very encouraging data for the triplet combination uh, in terms of the response rates and long-term outcomes from patients who received this, despite the fact that most of these patients, again, had PDL1 negative tumors. Now, this was a single-arm study, meaning that all patients received the triplet combination, and it wasn't compared to the current standard of care in this setting. However, this, this, the encouraging data that we have seen here at San Antonio uh, do support further investigation of this triplet combination and specifically in the PDL1 negative uh, space. Now, after first line therapy, there are now two antibody drug conjugates that are approved as second line options for patients with advanced triple negative breast cancer. These two antibody drug conjugates. Are one is a medication called sasituzumab govitecan, 
The other is a medication called trastuzumab deruxtigin or TDXD. So what is an antibody drug conjugate? In essence, an antibody drug conjugate is a way of delivering highly high doses of potent chemotherapy in a targeted manner to cancer cells. Sasituzumab govitecan does this by binding this antibody specifically to a target called trope 2, which is expressed on most triple negative breast cancers, and it delivers chemotherapy in a targeted manner to these cancer cells that are expressing trope 2. Trastuzumab deruxtigin or TDXD similarly delivers chemotherapy in a targeted manner, but by binding to a different target called HER2. Now, as Dr. Blaze mentioned at the beginning, we know that triple negative breast cancer is caused by what it doesn't have, by that lack of estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. But there is a, a proportion of triple negative tumors that have some degree of HER2 expression on the tumor cell, not enough to be called HER2 positive, but some degree of expression, which we now call HER2 low. And trastuzumab deruxtigin, or TDXD, is an antibody drug conjugate that is approved for patients who have advanced HER2 low breast cancer, whether it be triple negative HER2 low or hormone receptor positive HER2 low breast cancer. And overall, about 40 to 45% of triple negative breast cancers are HER2 low. We know uh, that uh, sasituzumab govitecan and trastuzumab deruxtigin significantly improve long-term outcomes uh, compared to standard chemotherapy in this second-line setting. And so one of the important questions that arises is for, the, for patients who have HER2 low triple negative tumors, is there an optimal sequence of therapy uh, should we give the trope 2 antibody drug conjugate first or the HER2 antibody drug conjugate first? And if we give one of these first, is there benefit from giving the other after the first uh, antibody drug conjugate? And so at San Antonio, uh, we saw there were four abstracts that were presented looking at real-world data of patients who received both of these antibody drug conjugates in sequence. And what we've seen from these abstracts is that overall, we know that the activity of the second antibody drug conjugate, when they're given in sequence, tends to be uh, less active, the second antibody drug conjugate, than the first. However, there are patients who have very good responses to the second antibody drug conjugate sometimes the same, if not better, than the first. And this underscores the need to understand better how these antibody drug conjugates work. Are there markers that we can look for specifically in the tumor that can help inform which antibody drug conjugate we give first? And if there is an optimal sequence for each patient based on the characteristics of the tumor. Dr. Abelman from MGH showed some initial data from patients who received these antibody drug conjugates in sequence who had genomic testing of the tumor done to look specifically at the DNA of the tumor. And in looking at the uh, samples and uh, before and after treatment, found specific alterations in the DNA that may 
confer resistance to a specific type of antibody drug conjugate to the chemotherapy of the antibody drug conjugate. It will be important not only just to look at mechanisms that drive resistance to the chemotherapy that the antibody drug conjugate delivers, but also whether there are changes in that target of the antibody drug conjugate, whether it be trope 2, HER2, or other targets that are currently in development to better understand if, there, if changes in how much of the target is present on tumor cells may impact the effectiveness, and if there is a way to individualize choice of therapy for patients depending on the characteristics in a given tumor. So these were some of the um, updates from the antibody drug conjugates that were presented uh, at San Antonio. There were also some updates from a biomarker perspective that relate to early stage breast cancer. And in particular, as we're thinking about the role of immunotherapy for early stage triple negative breast cancer, there is a clear unmet need to identify uh, markers that can help predict in whom we need to add immunotherapy to chemotherapy uh, because we know that there is a significant proportion of patients who do very well with chemotherapy alone and identifying who really needs the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy in the early stage space may help tailor therapy for patients optimize outcomes, and also spare unwanted toxicities um, in patients who may not need the addition of immune checkpoint inhibition to their, uh, to their preoperative regimen. And so what we saw at San Antonio were some updates uh, related to the uh, amount of immune cells that are found within tumors, what we call stromal tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, which we know are a a predictive marker of long-term outcomes in patients who get standard chemotherapy. So we know that for patients who have higher stromal TILs, which is measured within the tumor, that these patients um, do have better outcomes long-term than patients with lower levels of stromal TILs. But interestingly, when we look at studies that have uh, analyzed the addition of immune checkpoint inhibition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy, Stromal TILs, while it predicts who is more likely to benefit from chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, it also predicts who is more likely to benefit from chemotherapy alone. And therefore, it does not tell us specifically who needs the addition of pembrolizumab to their therapy. And so there were some updates presented at San Antonio uh, from studies looking specifically at this, also um, corroborating that um, that the uh, stromal tills or the amount of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes does not inform uh, who um, needs the addition of the immune checkpoint inhibitor to chemotherapy. And this uh, just also uh, clearly highlights the need for additional biomarker work and the importance of tumor tissue biopsies and blood samples on clinical trials because these samples can be very informative for investigators in terms of identifying these predictive markers to help improve outcomes and optimize treatment strategies for patients. So with that, um, I will pass it back over to Dr. Mesner, um, and I look forward also to the Q&A. 
participation, and um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, um, but just a very stellar and outstanding presentation. And our next uh, speaker is this uh, Haley Dinneman. And um, Ms. Dinneman is the, um, is the co-founder and executive director of Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And she'll be discussing the free programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation um, and provide you with their helpline information and website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Hinneman. Ms. Dinneman, who also happens to be a lawyer as well. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Carolyn. Uh, thank you to my fellow speakers, to our sponsors, and of course, to all of you listening today. Today's teleconference is one of many programs offered by the TNBC Foundation. All our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community. Our foundation is also a major supporter of TNBC-specific research. So we were thrilled to be in person at SABCS this year, learning about new developments and speaking directly with the researchers who are working towards better treatments and eventually a cure for this disease. Many of you on the line today followed us virtually during SABCS. But for those of you who didn't, or for those of you who want to learn more, please visit our SABCS-focused website, www.yourguidetosabcs.com. It's where you'll find medical updates from SABCS, our on-the-ground coverage, and interviews with other leading doctors and researchers, breaking down the data so that you can have a full understanding. If you're interested in additional information about the research that came out of this incredible conference, your guide to SABCS is a great place to start. For additional information about TNBC and for resources and support, please visit us at tnbcfoundation.org. We have many TNBC-specific educational materials available for free, and we work hard to make sure that every member of our community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials. So I hope you'll use them to your benefit. Our website also offers two free and TNBC-specific clinical trials matching services that we're told are much easier to navigate than other portals. One is exclusive to clinical trials for metastatic disease, and one includes all TNBC trials. Our website also features our online discussion forums. The forums, as well as our two private TNBC Foundation Facebook groups, allow you to easily connect with thousands of women who are living with TNBC any time of the day or night. We also have numerous monthly online Zoom meetings that are an excellent way to find support. You can sign up for our meetups on our website. The information is right on our homepage. And if you follow us on Facebook or visit our website, you'll get regular updates and be able to register for these and all our other upcoming programs. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you on social media, by phone, or online at tnbcfoundation.org. I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Dinneman. That was an outstanding presentation and such a wonderful resource for all of you on the call. Many of you are familiar with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, but for those of you who are not, it is just a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Victoria Puzo, and Ms. Puzo is um, our online our Cancer Care Online Support Group Program Director at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing the free, and she's an oncology social worker, and she will be discussing the free services of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, including clinical trials, ask the nurse, and uh, cancer 
care oncology social work support. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Puzo. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you everybody for joining us today. Um, again, my name is Victoria. I'm the director of the support group program here at Cancer Care. I'm also an oncology social worker. Um, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, who um, you just heard from with Haley, um, and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with cancer, with triple negative breast cancer, have access to free psychosocial services and support. Um, there are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that can be addressed through psychosocial supportive services, um, including navigating the emotional aspects of cancer, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, um, communication with your medical team. Um, I think earlier in the call it mentioned we mentioned some of the um, psychosocial um, aspects of dealing with a cancer diagnosis and how important it is to address that aspect. Um, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has also generously funded our TNBC hotline, um, which provides callers with access to um, the comprehensive services that both the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care can provide. Um, some of those services include resource navigation, counseling, educational workshops such as um, the one you joined today, publications, and some limited financial assistance. Um, by calling the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Helpline, individuals are also connected to an oncology social worker who is aware of the physical, emotional, and pra practical challenges that may arise when diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. So they can really take the time to explore what someone's needs might be and um, try to connect them with the appropriate services. Um, individuals diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer um, and their caregivers may choose to supplement existing social networks like your family, friends, um, community supports um, by joining a support group or engaging in individual counseling. Um, many, treat, many hospitals, treatment centers, or nonprofit organizations such as ours offer support services as well. Um, I think joining a support group in particular can offer the chance for triple negative breast cancer patients or their caregivers to speak with one another, gather information, and provide each other with support and encouragement. Um, cancer Care specifically offers triple negative online support groups that are moderated by an oncology social worker. Um, these are for both um, triple negative breast cancer patients and their caregivers. Um, the groups take place on a message board. Um, the goal of it is to reduce feelings of loneliness, um, anxiety, um, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, um, as well as providing some of the practical information about your diagnosis, um, resources, or other ways to um, communicate like with your medical team or your loved ones. Any of these support groups can be accessed through um, the cancercare.org website, going through our services tab and then clicking on support groups. Um, lastly, individuals may um, experience practical and financial concerns throughout your treatment um, or diagnosis. And please know that if you're encountering um, things like financial hardships, or um, practical concerns such as um, transportation to treatment. Um, there are organizations that may be able to help. Um, Cancer Care's resource navigation program offers a short-term strength-based approach 
to um, patients and caregivers. Um, a trained specialist will be able to work with the client um, and connect them to resources, referrals, um, and find things like financial assistance. So if you're interested in learning more about any of the programs we discussed here or the, some of the programs that Haley had covered, um, please call our triple negative breast cancer hotline at 877-880-8622. One of our cancer care oncology social workers can share additional information about our services and can also explore other um, resources that might be able to provide you with support or financial assistance. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this workshop and hearing all of the great updates from um, the symposium. And thank you for your attention. And I will turn it back to Dr. Mesner to start our Q&A. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Huth. That was really outstanding and just really a wonderful presentation. And both the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care are just wonderful resources for support um, and information for our participants. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Regina, if you could bring all of our speakers on board and if you could please um, explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we'll take questions from the web only and you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, a question uh, for Dr. Blaze. Is taking Zolota standard practice after 16 rounds of chemo, bilateral mastectomy, and 28 rounds of radiation. Um, I had two tumors. One had a complete chemo response. The other had no response. Um, if you could address this question, Dr. Blaze, in a general way to help all of our participants. Sure. Um, excellent question. So anytime right now, uh, Zolota or capcitabine is approved for patients who have residual cancer um, after going through chemotherapy and at the time of surgery. Um, some individuals receive chemotherapy only after surgery, in which case it's not clear that using additional Zolota or capcitabine is recommended. Um, for somebody who's gone through treatment and one tumor disappeared and another is present, um, I would recommend that that tumor be reevaluated for all of the receptors we've talked about, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. Sometimes the biology of a residual cancer is slightly different, which would be important then to have conversations with your doctor about whether or not um, Zolota or capcitabine should be considered. Um, and ultimately, I'd recommend if there is two tumors um, and one is still present, um, it's worth at least asking the question. Um, and I can tell you sometimes this is individualized um, based on the amount of disease that's present as well as how, how well somebody has done uh, on treatment. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and a uh, question for Dr. Um, um, Grado Castro. Um, what are your thoughts um, um, on possible mixed subtypes, um, having both TNBC and hormone plus in, in, in metastatic breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer? Thank you for that. That's an excellent question. So we do sometimes see heterogeneity in receptor expression, uh, both in the early stage and advanced setting. And by this, we mean that if, for example, you biopsy two different areas, 
um, it is possible that you might find uh, a different receptor status. Um, and you could find an area of tumor that is hormone receptor positive or two negative and another area that is uh, triple negative. Um, uh, in addition to, you know, there's sometimes there, there can be heterogeneity uh, regarding HER2 expression as well. And um, these are, you know, these are challenging cases um, in the sense that uh, you want to make sure that you are treating optimally uh, both types of, or both, you know, potential clones of the tumor. There might be uh, some, dis, you know, some uh, difference uh, in the underlying tumor biology um, leading to these different uh, receptor status in, at different sites. And so I think you, you want to make sure um, that you are treating adequately both types of breast cancer. And that's where there are treatments that do overlap across breast cancer subtypes. Um, particularly, uh, there are chemotherapies that are um, standard approaches uh, in the advanced setting for both hormone receptor positive for 2 negative and triple negative breast cancer. But importantly, I think also now with the antibody drug conjugates, both sasituzumab govotecan and trastuzumab deruxtecan are approved for hormone receptor positive HER2 negative and triple negative breast cancer. Um, and so these are um, treatment options that can be considered um, in patients who have these, these breast cancer subtypes after receipt of at least one prior line of chemotherapy. And I think developing um, these new approaches, these, these kind of uh, smart uh, ways of, of delivering uh, uh, therapy in a targeted manner to cancer cells um, that is agnostic to the hormone receptor status does, does allow us to, to treat these, these types of scenarios where you might have heterogeneity and hormone receptor expression. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. Um, and a question for Dr. Blaise. Um, CTDNA testing was mentioned. This is not widely accepted across the oncology community. Was there any further discussion that this testing will become more widely accepted? And is there any further data that suggests this test provides beneficial data? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think, um, you know, when uh, Dr. Garrido Castro and I were asked to give this presentation, we were asked to discuss um, updates from San Antonio. And I think you're exactly correct that the routine use of testing such as CTDNA is not widely accepted or practiced. Um, but at every breast cancer meeting that we go to, I would tell you there's an increase in the amount of data that keeps coming out about the utilization of it. Um, but there, at the same time, there's still many unknown questions. So how would I direct patients? Um, I don't think this is part of routine practice today. I do think that it's an important question that I would tell patients and advocates to keep asking about because at some point, it will become standard in practice in my own mind, although currently there's a lot of unknown questions. So the way I guide my patients is keep asking me about it um, because we do keep learning about how to utilize this. And some centers do have research protocols um, open that one, we can continue to advance the science, um, but two, they may be eligible for a clinical study um, that's actually trying to answer some of those questions um, and that may be something that they want to participate in, both from a therapeutic perspective, um, but also to help advance the science. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Um, 
Guido Castro, I have severe tinnitus from carboplatinum. What can I do? So um, thank you for that question. So unfortunately, there are some, there are toxicities associated with uh, chemotherapies and, and, and other agents um, that we use to treat both early stage and advanced triple negative breast cancer. Um, and uh, neuro neurotoxicity uh, from platinum uh, salts um, can occur. So certainly, you know, when there are significant toxicities from these agents, we do uh, very much encourage a multidisciplinary approach and um, referral to specialists who can help with management of some of these toxicities. Um, it does, I think, underscore the need not only, you know, we've talked a lot today about the need to identify predictive markers of response to treatments to help identify the right treatment option for better long-term outcomes, but I, I think it's not just only, uh, should not only be focused on effectiveness of treatments, but also on the safety of treatments and can we identify ways of predicting, uh, you know, who, who is at more risk of developing uh, significant toxicities from certain agents, and can that also help inform our decisions? Um, so, uh, but to address the, the question, I, I do think that uh, involving our, our colleagues, uh, our specialists who can help manage some of these uh, of these toxicities is key. Excellent, thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Blas: um, Is there any long-term survival difference between triples choosing mastectomy versus lumpectomy? In terms of whether or not there's a survival advantage for people, um, the current, I mean, if you try to combine all of the current literature, individuals who receive a lumpectomy and radiation have equivalent outcomes to those that receive a mastectomy. Um, there are unique settings where we're not able to do a lumpectomy, um, such as if there's a large tumor, we're concerned about whether or not um, all of that can come out uh, without doing a mastectomy. Um, there are unique situations where radiation is recommended after a mastectomy as well. But from the simple question of are the outcomes the same, meaning patients live the same um, and have no changes or differences in overall survival, um, doing a lumpectomy with radiation is really equivalent to doing a mastectomy. Excellent. Thank you. It's a question that comes up a lot, so thank you so much. Um, and um, this question um, um, for, um, this is just a general question. Will this, this um, be recorded and shared for those who couldn't join live? And absolutely, the program is um, recorded. Um, it usually takes a few days for the podcast to go up live. And the podcast is with closed caption so that um, people will be able to um, both um, hear uh, the speakers, but also see the closed caption as well. So um, it usually takes just a few days for that to go up um, live. And it's usually up for at least a year, if not longer. So this is a question for Dr. Blaze. Um, regarding a treatment for triple negative, is it, and this would be for Dr. Blaze, is it considered standard of care for neoadjuvant treatment with pembrolizumab irrespective of PDL1 classification? Um, thanks for that question. 
currently that's the indication is it's uh, immunotherapy. And I'll just know, I think we have an international audience, so I, I'm not going to be able to um, say specifically how this is used in all countries around the world. Um, but today, um, immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy for stage two and three breast cancer is really standard practice regardless of what the PDL1 status is. Um, as you heard, we're learning more and more, um, and similar to some other diseases where there are high levels of uh, PDL1 expression, there tends to be better response. Um, but currently, the indication is um, across all subtypes, um, meaning all different levels of PD1 expression um, in those with stage 2 and 3 breast cancer in the United States. Thank you so much. And a question uh, for Dr. Garrido Castro. Can you speak to how you may be using any of the SABCS research that is applicable to stage one, stage two, and three early stage breast, uh, early stage um, disease to create treatment plans for the stage one patients in your practice? Yes, thank you. That is an excellent question. So. I think from the data that we saw at San Antonio that Dr. Blaze reviewed earlier um, uh, regarding the use of immunotherapy in the early stage setting, uh, the fact that we now have um, kind of confirmation from a phase three study that doing the that giving the immunotherapy after surgery uh, does not improve long-term outcomes. Uh, adding immunotherapy to standard chemotherapy does not improve long-term outcomes further supports that for patients with stage two or three triple negative breast cancer, uh, the standard of care for, for most of these patients is to consider preoperative chemotherapy in combination with, immune, with the immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab. So I think this, this reaffirms um, the, the current standard for these patients, uh, giving this combination uh, before, uh, before surgery. What I think is very interesting uh, from some of the studies that have um, been reported, in particular, there was a study not presented at San Antonio, but presented previously at ASCO, um, the NEOPACT trial, which looked at an anthracycline sparing regimen in the preoperative setting, uh, meaning uh, instead of the full 24 weeks of chemotherapy that uh, is considered standard now in combination with pembrolizumab, those 24 weeks including 12 weeks of carboplatin plus paclitaxel and thereafter followed by AC or EC chemotherapy. Uh, instead of that, Neopact looked at an 18-week regimen of carboplatin, docetaxel, and pembrolizumab and showed that the pathologic complete response rate um, was numerically similar to what historically we've seen in the Keynote 522 uh, trial uh, with, with the full 24-week regimen. And so this has prompted um, a new trial um, called the SCARLET trial, which is comparing the Keynote 522 standard, now standard regimen to a regimen that does not contain the AC or EC portion of therapy, so carboplatin, docetaxel, and pembrolizumab, uh, looking to see if it is possible to spare the added side effects of the anthracycline portion of chemotherapy for patients with early stage disease. Now, interestingly, in Neopact, um, there were about 15% of patients who had stage one uh, triple negative tumors um, who received carboplatin, docetaxel, and pembrolizumab. 
And, you know, I think for uh, for stage one triple negative breast cancer, we, we do want to be very mindful about the potential risks and benefits of treatment and we, um, uh, in terms of over-treatment with, um, with many cytotoxic chemotherapies or immunotherapy if immunotherapy is not needed. Um, but it is um, interesting for those patients who have larger stage one uh, triple negative tumors, for example, 1.5 to 2 centimeters, node negative, one might consider um, in some of these uh, uh, situations doing a preoperative regimen, and it will be important to see from some of the ongoing clinical trials whether there is a role for immune checkpoint inhibition um, in these larger, what we call T1C node negative, triple negative breast cancers. Um, from uh, also from other studies reported prior to this San Antonio, we also we know that uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or stromal tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, um, when present at particularly high levels in patients with small stage one triple negative breast cancers, the outcomes long term um, are are very good. And so another question that arises is, can we use stromal tumor infiltrating lymphocytes to potentially help tailor therapy for patients with stage one triple negative tumors, um, potentially, you know, do, do, in these situations, do we need less chemotherapy, um, or are there different strategies that one might consider for, for uh, these, um, uh, for patients with these tumors that have a more favorable prognosis? So I think there's, there's certainly a lot of research that is currently ongoing in the early stage space. Uh, focused on uh, trying to optimize uh, strategies uh, for, for therapy, both for stage one and stage two to three TNBC. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And for Dr. Blaise, um, is it standard of care to give, to offer radiation in stage 2B TNBC that does not achieve PCR at time of surgery? The question about the use of radiation is um, dependent upon more than just residual cancer. Um, and um, on a high-level approach, I would say it, it's going to depend on the size of the cancer that's there at its initial presentation, as well as the lymph node status at the time of original presentation. Um, and so I typically recommend that for any patient who has lymph node involvement up front at the time of presentation, um, it's recommended that they see radiation oncology um, as most of those patients, regardless of what kind of response they have to chemo or chemoimmunotherapy, are going to be recommended to have radiation in the adjuvant setting. For those who have cancer in the breast, um, it's going to depend on the type of surgery as well as the amount of disease that's there. Um, there is a trend um, towards trying to reduce the amount of radiation that's needed. Um, and in some situations to say, can we eliminate um, adjuvant radiation? Most of these trials, however, don't include um, triple negative breast cancer. And so um, I would tend to think about the criteria I just mentioned as, and that many patients, particularly those with lymph node involvement or larger tumors at the time of initial presentation with triple negative breast cancer should really be receiving um, adjuvant radiation. Excellent, thank you. And the question um, for, um, for Dr. Garrido uh, Castro, what percentage of the population get MDS as a result of chemo 
And is there a benefit to having patients donate their own bone marrow prior to chemo? In addition, what are the symptoms of MDS? So that's also a great question. This, um, it does depend on the type of cytotoxic chemotherapy that is given. Um, the frequency of secondary hematologic malignancies um, is quite low, um, and, uh, but it does, it does depend on the type of chemotherapy that patients receive. Um, currently, um, uh, donating uh, uh, or doing a marrow transplant um, uh, uh, for patients who, who have breast cancer is not, um, is not incorporated into, um, into, our, into routine practice. Uh, I do think that monitoring carefully over time, you know, we do uh, continue to follow patients over time through survivorship programs as well, well beyond uh, five years uh, from the initial breast cancer diagnosis is key um, in establishing uh, that follow-up either through survivorship programs and also routine care with primary, uh, with, uh, primary care physicians as well um, to monitor for potential signs and symptoms of long-term toxicity. It's not just hematologic toxicity, but potential cardiac toxicity that sometimes we see with the uh, treatments um, that are administered for, for early-stage breast cancer. Excellent. Thank you. And just to remind everyone, the next triple negative breast cancer program is on January 10th, uh, the benefits of clinical trials for triple negative breast cancer. Um, and, um, and I think we'll just have some takeaways at this point um, from our speakers. So I'm going to start first um, with, uh, with Dr. Blaze, if you'd like to give a takeaway for today's program. Um, I think it's always hard to summarize a talk in a few bullet points, um, but I think uh, the, the way I would think about it is um, we know triple negative breast cancer, especially in the early stage setting, is a biologically aggressive cancer. Um, thinking about how to incorporate immunotherapy um, and chemotherapy prior to surgery can be beneficial. And part of that is we can tailor our treatments in the adjuvant setting then depending on how well somebody, somebody's cancer responds or does not respond to treatment. Um, I think the second thing, and we didn't spend a lot of time in the Q&A talking about it, but um, supportive care and um, really monitoring patient-reported outcomes and patient-important outcomes, so addressing some of the questions we heard about with side effects, such as second cancers, um, tinnitus, neuropathy. Um, it's really important that those are part of practice and we work uh, with our care teams um, on supportive care management um, as we're learning more about how to better predict who has those. And also, as you've heard um, from Dr. Garrido Castro, that there's more and more therapies available in triple negative breast cancer, and so sometimes there's alternative options where there may be less toxicity. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Garrido Castro? Thank you. you know, I, I think Dr. Blaze did a, a great job summarizing the, the bullet points from, from today's discussion. I would emphasize the ongoing research, both in the early stage and advanced setting, um, to help uh, tailor treatments, optimize treatments in an individualized manner, um, and the importance of uh, clinical research to 
uh, and biopsies that are done as part of clinical trials to help inform these, these treatment decisions and, and the discovery of markers that can help improve outcomes. And so with all of these new therapies that are currently in development, the antibody drug conjugates that we talked about uh, that are currently available for advanced breast cancer but, but that are also being studied in the early stage setting, um, both in the preoperative space and also after surgery, um, it will become um, of the utmost importance to, to better understand how these treatments work and other targeted therapies that are in development so that we can identify ways also um, to overcome resistance to these therapies. How can we further improve outcomes um, with either new approaches, new combinations, um, and also can we identify predictors of side effects from these, uh, from these agents and, 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 and try to optimize care as well um, from that perspective. So definitely a lot more to come. Um, and we, you know, we certainly look forward to more updates in the year to come from some of the ongoing clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Huso? Um, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed all the information that was shared today. Um, I definitely encourage everyone to, you know, reach out for support. Don't, um, you know, ignore the emotional aspect of your cancer diagnosis or your loved one's cancer diagnosis. Um, everybody deserves to get some form of emotional support when you're going through such a stressful, life-changing um, diagnosis. Um, so please be sure to reach out to those um, support programs that we shared today. Excellent, thank you. I want to just thank everyone for um, participating in today's program. Um, it was an amazing program, both in terms of the, uh, the speakers as well as all of um, uh, you who asked such great questions, which really always enhance our programs. And although we've done this program before, I think the questions today were far more sophisticated and really, um, really um, trying to get further information um, and we do recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team to get additional information um, that will be helpful to you in, um, in, the, in the coming year ahead. Um, also, um, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with, uh, with cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, which includes the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Cancer Care, and many other organizations, and you will be receiving um, a survey monkey evaluation, which will um, give you a chance to um, to really uh, you should get that in a couple of days after the program, and you'll be able to consider um, you know issues and concerns that you may have um, in terms of uh, coping with triple negative breast cancer, um, and and uh, and most importantly. We want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and just ask your questions over and over again. That's really important to work with your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of um, not just your oncologist and radiation oncologist and surgical oncologist, but also includes your oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, um, uh, financial navigator. Just all the different members of the team that can be of help to you. That's really important that you utilize everybody on your team. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. We are also entering 
a holiday time of year for some people, and just remember that um, we are all here to help you. So thank you all for your being on the call today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.